Let's turn for a little to the chapter we read in John's Gospel, John chapter uh, 12. <coughs> and uh, reading from verse 20. John chapter 12, reading from verse 20, And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come, that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it dies, it bringeth forth much good. <clears throat> now the Lord Jesus was, uh, in a, well, I'm sure we could say, was the master of using everyday events and everyday situations to explain deep, profound spiritual truths. And that's what we have here, where Jesus is talking about the corn of wheat which falls into the ground. But just prior to him telling about this corn of wheat which falls into the ground, we have these uh, Greeks that came with a desire to see Jesus. Now this, uh, a desire we know isn't just uh, a certain kind of a wish. A desire is far deeper than that. It is, a, it is something which is right in the very heart of our being. It is a, a real heartfelt longing. There was a yearn in their heart. They really wanted to see Jesus. And uh, we know that there were some of these Greeks that they had come, they were proselytes, they had come to embrace uh, the, the Jewish form of worship. And uh, the, they, although they were granted many, many privileges, they weren't allowed to enter into everything that the Jew was. They were only allowed into a certain part of the temple. And uh, in passing we can see how wonderful it is that we're living in a day where there are no barriers because when that veil of the temple was rent in two that put an end put an end to all the barriers that had existed beforehand and it's wonderful to know that there is no as, as Paul writes about it in uh, Colossians where he says that there is neither Jew nor Gentile where there is uh, there in, in, in Colossians chapter 3 uh, where, where he's saying that there is uh, the, 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 the barrier has been broken down where there is neither Greek nor Jew circumcision nor uncircumcision barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free but Christ is all and in all wonderful thing Greek nor Jew you know there's an awful lot of I suppose many of the wars today they come around because of nationalistic fervor nationalistic pride it's our land this is my land some people seem to think that their own particular race is superior to other races this is what it's saying here no there's not one race that's more important more wonderful than another neither uh, <coughs> Jew, Greek nor Jew circumcision nor uncircumcision it's not wonderful that's talking here about the religious differences so that it doesn't matter whether a person was a Buddhist a Baptist or a Jew it's a, it doesn't matter what background they've come from, it's the same gospel, it's the same work. And then it's saying barbarian, barbarian or Scythian, 
And uh, the Greeks looked at all others who weren't uh, Greeks as being barbarians, and the worst of the lot were the Scythians. So it doesn't matter what, uh, what, who you, what your background is, bond or free, whether you're somebody who's from the palace or whether you're living in the gutter, it's the same gospel. Same gospel for everybody. And that's really what we, the, the, the wonderful thing that we have about this great and wonderful gospel, that there's no skin color, there's no culture, no philosophies, no rank, no position creates any particular difference. Just this one thing, believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. So these Greeks had come and they were deciding to see Jesus. Now, this particular desire that they had to see Jesus wasn't a desire to see what he looked like, to see what he was like, uh, physical size or what he, what, how he spoke or something like that. It wasn't a, a desire of curiosity to see what Jesus was like. They could see that at any time. This was a desire to get to know Jesus more. They wanted to, as it were, to come to, to have a particular time of fellowship with him. They wanted to have a, a time of intimacy with him. And you know, friends, this is a desire of every single soul that has begun to take an interest in the Lord. They desire to see Jesus. If you are here tonight and that is your heart's desire to see Jesus, remember that that is a supernatural work. You couldn't desire to see Jesus in and of yourself. The Bible says, with regard to the Lord Jesus, that they saw no beauty in him that they should desire him. That's what Isaiah tells us. And that is the reason why there are so many people who have no interest in the Word of God, they've got no interest in coming to church, they've got no interest in spiritual things or spiritual fellowship, because they see no beauty in Jesus. You can tell them, you can try and convince them, but it means nothing. It's like water off a duck's back. And if you are here tonight and your desire is to see more of Jesus, then that is because you have first come to see him. Maybe there's somebody here tonight and Jesus, it's only just now that you're beginning to come. I don't know. There might be somebody like that. And there has been a gradual opening of your eyes to see him. Beginning to see a little of who he is and a little of, it, of what he has done. And beginning to discover that that work that he did in Calvary is a personal work for you and to you. Before him, you used to see him as somebody who did a great work and you knew that he saved lots and lots of people but you didn't know anything about it personally but maybe tonight it has become more and more personal for you're able to say not that Jesus died for sinners but you're able now to say that Jesus died for me a sinner not as a work of grace not as what goes on within the people of God but uh, that is why so many have no thought or no notion of Jesus because they see no beauty in him. Then when we see these Greeks here and they have this great desire to see Jesus, to be near to him and to have fellowship with him. And it's in response to this particular desire of the, the Greeks to see Jesus that we have uh, what we, the, verse 24. Now Jesus begins in verse 23 and he says that the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, I believe that Jesus is involving the Greeks that are there, but he is particularly speaking to his disciples. 
And uh, you see, just prior to the Greeks coming, we have the account of Christ's triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Now, although Jesus had frequently spoken about his death, he was always telling the disciples, you'll find it, if you go through all the Gospels, you'll find dotted here and there that Jesus would take the disciples aside and he would tell them what was going to happen. But the disciples had not come to grasp. None of them had grasped what was really going to happen to Jesus. They were still clinging to the old idea that Jesus was going to set up an earthly kingdom. That it was going to be a time of temporal prosperity. They had this belief that, that, uh, that it was going to be, uh, everything was going to happen in this world. And they weren't grasping what Jesus had to do. Remember how on one occasion, just after Peter had made the great confession that Jesus Christ was, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Just after that, when Jesus went on to tell what was to happen, remember how Peter was trying with all his power to dissuade Jesus from, from that. And in the end, the Lord had to say, say remember what he said, get thee behind me, Satan. But they haven't grasped what exactly was happening. And they were, they were being disappointed at the way that people were forsaking Jesus because you remember in the earlier part of we went back a few chapters in John, back to John chapter 6. Jesus was an immensely popular person and vast crimes were following. Remember after the, where he fed the thousands? They wanted to take him and make him king. And when Jesus then had this great crowd in front of him and he began to teach them the nature of his work and that uh, about the bread of with that great statement, I am the bread of life, and the importance of feeding on Jesus, they began to take umbrage and they began to take offense and they went away in droves to the extent, I think, I've often thought that must have been one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the life of Christ. Where, although Jesus knew the heart of all men, though he knew what was happening, and he could read and understand, and he knew how thick of people were, yet to see all these thousands of people going out after him, and yet they're all turning away. And I would imagine that thousands turned away from him on that occasion, because Jesus turns to the twelve, and at the end of chapter six, he's saying to them, will you also go away. It is as, as if nearly everybody had deserted him. And again Peter had come and he said, To whom else can we go? For thou hast the words of eternal life. So the disciples were noticing that things were changing. Jesus wasn't that great figure of uh, popularity that he had been. And yet, just prior to this incident, again, there was a moment of popularity where Jesus rode into Jerusalem and the crowds were out and they were crying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And again we see the fickleness of people. You know, people are, oh, that's what makes God's love so wonderful. It's unchanging. You know, we, we're so fickle. And what we love one day, we're against the next day. You know, that's one of the, I suppose, one of the awful things. That's what we love when we find somebody who is stable. Somebody who is loyal. Loyalty is a wonderful thing. Always be there. There for you. And that's one of the wonderful things about the Lord. 
His love is stable. His love is unchanging. It's not subject to the way that we operate. When we fail him, his love doesn't cease. He loves us. He continues to love us. It's a wonderful thing. But you see, here, here are people, and they're shouting Hosanna. And yet just a few days later, that same crowd probably, who's shouting Hosanna, are shouting crucify him, crucify him. That's the fickleness of man. But coming back to the disciples and the popularity of Jesus, you see, when Je despite the fact that Jesus kept telling them what was going to happen to him, it tells us in verse 16, these things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they, they that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things unto him. Remember when Jesus had risen from the dead? Remember how Peter and John ran to the empty tomb? It tells us here that, you remember how, how, how John, how Peter went in, but John, when he saw, he believed, he remembered. It all came together for him. All the teaching, the earlier teaching, and then at that moment, it all came together for him. You friends, it's often the same for ourselves. Here's something slow to understand. There are many things sometimes we think we understand. We read them and we say, oh yes, I, I, yeah, that's great, I understand that. And then maybe it's down the road a year or two or three or ten years. And you begin to say, I never really understood that before. And I think it will go on like that for us. And I'm sure that the more senior people here will be the first to say that, they, that there are many things that they thought that they had understood and are seeing them in a new light with new understanding today. That's the way it will go on. It will go on into glory like that. A continual developing and opening up of the wonder of it all. And in passing, we may say that there in John chapter 12, at the beginning of the chapter, where we have Mary anointing the feet of Jesus, that Mary was the most spiritually minded follower that Jesus had. She was the greatest disciple that Jesus had. Mary understood what Peter didn't understand, what John didn't understand, what James didn't understand. None of the others understood. But remember, when Mary anointed the feet of Jesus, that Jesus said, said that she has done this, let her alone against the day of my burying, as she kept this. Mary alone understood who Jesus or what Jesus was about. And no doubt Mary had under, come to understand that through her continual sitting at Jesus' feet. So Jesus was telling them, look, it's not going to be the way that you think. But anyway, the time has come and Jesus says this, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, all along Jesus was talking about a particular hour. You'll find many references in the Bible about that. For instance, remember, he, 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 at, the, at, the, at the wedding, to his mother at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, he said, mine hour has not yet come. To his disciples, he said, my time has not yet come. <laughs> Elsewhere we read it saying, no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. And that shows us that Jesus was keeping to a heavenly timetable. And that's wonderful. That is something which is so 
so uh, meaningful to us because it means that Jesus wasn't taken by force that he wasn't taken against his will when they came to take him in the garden Jesus gave himself remember when initially when they came and he said whom seek ye they said Jesus of Nazareth and he said I am he remember what happened they fell to the ground it was as if they were, were thrown to the ground with force they couldn't take him unless he himself yielded himself remember when he was on the cross they said he saved others himself he cannot save come down from the cross Jesus could have come down from the cross in a moment do you think that two nails hammered through his hands could have held him there of course not they couldn't but he had given himself up he yielded himself and the hour had now come and you know it's wonderful to know for you and me that although our lives are different in the sense that Jesus came into this world with the express purpose of dying that there was a heavenly timetable set for him we can also say that there is a heavenly timetable set for you and for me the day of our birth and the day of our death is appointed it's often a mystery to us the way that God works by a young child is taken away who can understand these things? A loving mother, a doting father, a soul-winning minister, taken away what we would say way before their time. And yet, it is not before their time from God's point of view. And that's what brings us so often to understand or not even, we cannot understand it. But remember how God says, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and so often we're faced up to God's providence. And we have to say, that is true. I cannot understand the way that God works. His ways are in the deep, they're beyond my understanding, they're beyond your understanding. But there is a purpose. And it is only throughout the endlessness of eternity that we will see His purposes. And you know, we will praise Him. We will praise Him. Because we will see it from his perspective and understand it. But we know not now, we shall know hereafter. So nobody could take Jesus before his appointed time. But Jesus has said, the hour is come. The hour is come when I'm going to be taken. My work is over. Now again, from a human point of view, you would say never. Here's this man. Yes, God, but man. 33 years of age and he has brought so much healing to so many people he's doing so much good and he's brought so much hope into people's lives he has excited people and thrilled people wherever he went people were following him people were touched by his work 33 years of age he's really just coming into his prime from a human point of view as far as his world is concerned and yet he's saying my time has come the hour has come. And he says the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He's speaking here about his death and about his resurrection. Now again, from one point of view, or in one sense, there is nothing glorious about the cross. It was a place of degradation, a place of shame, a place of curse. It was a place of wrath. It was a place 
where God poured upon Christ his wrath and anger for sin. And yet there's a tremendous glory attached to the cross. Because it's here we see the supreme work of God and the supreme work of Christ. It is here that we see love. A love that transcends any love that we could ever know. Remember how it puts it in the Bible. What has the Lord done for us? Who loved us and washed us from our sins. Now, we would put it the other way around. We would say, who washed us and loved us. But no, the order is the other way around. You and I love something when it's, there's something appealing about it. You love something that is attractive. Something that is repugnant and vile and hateful. We kind of recoil from it. But you know, that's what the Lord did while we were like that. While we were sinners. While we were rebels. While we were enemies. While we were disgusting and putrid all the way through. He loved us in order to wash us. In order to cleanse us. That's his love. Wonderful love. And it's on the cross that we see the display of this love. This love that loved us in order to wash us. And there's a tremendous glory attached to it. There were glorious happenings when Jesus was on the cross. Remember how the very rocks tore? The very sun hid itself. You know, it's an amazing thing. Remember what it, what it says. If these should hold their peace, the very stones would cry out. And you know, in a sense, we find that in the, when Jesus died on the cross of Calvary or when he dismissed his spirit. But there was man, the crown of God's creation. And there they were abusing the Son of God. And yet the very testimony of the natural creation all around, the rocks and the sun and everything was bearing testimony in a glorious way that this is Christ, the Son of God. And then we find, remember, in the temple, how the, how the, how the veil was torn in two from top to bottom. And so there was this glory that was mingled with the shame. But of course the cross led into glory. The cross was a pathway to glory. And the cross is a pathway to glory for you and for me. Let us remember that. That we will never ever ever taste of glory unless we come by the way of the cross. And we know that when the Lord Jesus Christ died, and his lifeless body was taken down from the cross. In one sense, it was almost although he was still in a state of humiliation because part of his humiliation involved being buried. And yet there was an aspect of the glory attached to it. Because as we were singing there in Psalm 16, that his body saw no corruption. That's one of the great distinctions between Christ's death and the death that you and I will die. Because when death sets in, when we die, corruption begins. That's one of, the, one of the fearful, fearful fruits of sin. Is that those that we love, we have to get rid of. We cannot bear to have them. We have to bury them. That's one of the, the most devastating things about sin. Because the body begins to corrupt and decay and go back to the dust that it came from. Oh, let us thank the Lord for the believer 
But Christ is still guardian over the very dust. And that, that body will be raised. A glorious body to be reunited with the soul. But for Jesus Christ, his body saw no corruption. So there was this glory mingled with the shame. And then just very briefly a word in verse 24. And Christ is illustrating what is happening. He's illustrating the glory. The glory that is taking place here by this co the corn. Except a corn of wheat it fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Now if you take a grain of wheat and you keep it in your hand, well, and you just leave it in your hand or you put it on the, on the wee desk or you put it on the table there and left it there, that's what it would remain. It would remain a little grain of wheat there and it would be all alone and that, it wouldn't change into anything else. That's what it would be. But if you take that same grain and you put it into the ground, a wonderful process takes place. Because that grain of wheat dies. But from it, there will come the blade, then the ear, and then the full corn in the ear. And that's what Jesus Christ is saying about himself. And he is saying there that he has to die. Because if he didn't die, he would be alone. Not that he would be alone in one sense, because he would always, as he, as he always from all eternity, Christ is the second person of the Godhead enjoyed all the fellowship and love and communion and interaction between Father and Holy Spirit. And that was in need of nothing. But if Christ didn't die, there would be no church. You and I wouldn't be here tonight. And although the, there is a great company of angels that have also been created, if Christ didn't die, he would be alone with no church. No church. And Christ didn't die, we mentioned that earlier, he didn't die by accident. He died deliberately, just as a sower. When a sower goes out and sows the seed, he sows it deliberately in a particular place in order that that seed will die and then will, will grow up and the grain will grow up. It's a deliberate work, a deliberate process. And that's what the Lord Jesus did. And that's why he said, the hour is now come. And again, Christ's death we're really saying is a way of bringing in this great harvest you know when you look at the grain in your hand or if you had a few grains in your hand you could never imagine just or supposing you had a sack of grain and you looked at it and it's nothing very particularly or particularly inspiring or wonderful about a sack of grain and you can never imagine what it will one day turn into until it's sown and grows and harvested. And similarly, when people looked at Jesus and they saw him walking in this world, there was nothing about him that was indicating really the wonder and the glory of who he was and what would be achieved by what he did. People looked at him just as a man. And he was a man, but he was a God-man. It, but it wasn't until he died and it wasn't but through his death that people are able to see the glory of what Jesus has done. And I believe that this is all tied in with the Greeks desiring to see Jesus. They cannot see Jesus who he is, but by the way of death and the harvest. Oh, what a glorious harvest is coming from that day. 
where they're going to be gathered from all corners of this world. Millions being brought in. <clears throat> we didn't hear the Bible societies, little pamphlet that came out, was it saying that 50,000 people a day being brought into the Christian church worldwide? We never hear of these figures. That's wonderful. That's awesome. And the reverse is true here. They're saying that the equivalent of a, a congregation is being lost in our country every week. And that's terrible. But you see, worldwide, <clears throat> this is what's happening. This is a great harvest where men and women, boys and girls, have been brought in from all countries, from all backgrounds. They're brought in because Jesus <coughs> has laid down his life. He has died. He has won victory over death and over the grave. He died a personal death. You know, when Jesus went to the cross, he saw, if you're here tonight and you love the Lord Jesus, if he is your savior, he went to the death, went to the cross seeing you. He went to the cross and he tasted personally your death. We so often, when we think of the cross, we look at it in an abstract sense and we say, yeah, yeah, Jesus died for sinners. But the word tells us that he tasted death for every man. It was as personal as if Jesus was dying exclusively for you and not for anybody else. Of course he died for, for, <clears throat> for all his people, but he died personally for you. It is a wonderful thing, and that is what we really have to focus our mind upon. And if Jesus died personally for you, then that is what he is asking you. He's not asking much of you, but he's asking that you will remember him. Tomorrow is Remembrance Sunday. But it's more, it's an, it's an even greater, and I don't in any way am I taking away detracting from all the brave and courageous men and women who gave their lives in the war. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man should lay down his life for his friends. And what a sacrifice in that last war. But you know, there was one death that was even greater, and that was Jesus's. It was personal. And if he died for you, then he's asking you to remember him by coming to profess his name, to take that cup and to take that bread and to do this in remembrance of me. I hope that every single one who loves the Lord Jesus will do that tomorrow. Let us pray. <clears> o <throat> oh, gracious and ever blessed Lord, we give thee thanks for all thy goodness to us. We pray that this word may be meaningful to us, that we may be able to see our risen Savior, be able to see that the personalness of what Jesus has done for us. O oh, Lord, our oh God, we thank thee that thou art gentle in thy dealings with us. Oh, there might be times when we feel that it's been hard. There might be times when maybe somebody here has a broken heart in the way that the Lord has dealt with them. And yet uh, the amazing thing is this, that there is a tenderness mingled with whatever comes. And we pray, Lord, for each and every one here tonight. We pray that the love of Jesus may fill our hearts and that we may have that joy and peace that is found only in himself. Bless us then, we pray, and take each one of us home safely. Part us with thy blessing and take away sin for Jesus' sake. Amen.